Go ahead and take a seat, please. <clears throat> I did learn something from a book that was something I experienced in real life. And that is that whenever you're speaking or whenever you're teaching, whether they're asking it out loud, people are always asking the question, why should I listen to you? I was a substitute teacher in high school for several years when I was in grad school. And I feel like no one ever said it, but I could see it in their eyes. Those high school students, why should I listen to you? See, as we look at our text this morning from Colossians 1, 24 through 25, I think we can imagine Paul answering this question. Uh, we do know from chapter 2, verse 1, that there are many here who have never seen Paul face to face. And Paul is getting ready. He is about to address some false teaching, and he is about to correct that. But before he does it, I think Paul knows he needs to establish his right to be able to speak into the lives of the people. And they're wondering, why does Paul deserve a hearing? Or perhaps more importantly, they're wondering, why does the gospel that Paul is preaching deserve a hearing? And Paul knows that unless he's seen as credible, they will simply disregard his message. Now, we do know from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul has already identified himself as an apostle. Now, so we would imagine this whole, why should I listen to you answer to be that Paul will get up and he will say, and I'm going to remind you right now, I'm an apostle. So you sit down and be quiet and listen to me because I have this title and I have this position and I have this office. But as we look closely at the text, this is not what Paul is going to do. I think any of us who have looked at all at little bits and pieces of leadership, as Bill has actually been helping us go through some of this, we realize that any time a leader needs to evoke their position to get people to listen to them, they have lost already their leadership. Have they not? And so Paul here will not do that. Instead, he's going to point to something else that is the basis by which they should listen to him. What right does he have to speak on their behalf? He tells us in verse 24 that he suffers... For their sake. In verse 29, he says that he toils and he struggles with all the energy that God powerfully inspires within him. And then he reminds them once more For I want you to know how much I am suffering for you. Why should they listen to Paul? Do you see his answer here? Because I have suffered on your behalf. And on behalf of the gospel, when Paul talks about the labor here, he uses a word that he only uses in reference to his ministry. So Paul's not saying, hey, look at all those tents that I built as a tent maker. I've worked really hard at doing that. I've built a successful business. Listen to me because I built a successful tent making business. The word he uses where toil is highlighted here is a word he only uses in reference to ministry. So Paul is saying, I have worked hard in the ministry. And the suffering Paul talks about is not general suffering like I've been sick or I've had people mistreat me. But he's talking about suffering specifically because he has been involved in the ministry to which God has called him. What kind of suffering, what kind of misfortune has come upon Paul as a preacher? We know of two of the things and we find many in other texts. But in Colossians we know, first of all, that as he writes this letter he is in prison. He is in prison specifically because of his preaching. That's in 4 verse 10. 
We also know that Paul says that because of his preaching, those of the circumcision are no longer among his co-workers. In other words, people who used to befriend him, used to walk alongside him in the ministry because of a stance he's taken, a stance of circumcision that is not necessary for salvation. Some have disowned him or have ostracized him. And Paul is saying, I have suffered because of this gospel message that I have been responsible for teaching. He goes on to use athletic imagery as he talks about this struggle or this contending. So he borrows this word if you've ever seen an athlete sweating as they've trained and as they've been a part of a game. Paul's saying, that's what I've done in the ministry. And then these final two terms uh, of struggle that he speaks of is a word that comes from the Greek word agonadza, which sounds an awful lot like the word agony, which is exactly what it means. He says, I have been in agony over this ministry to which I have been called. So Paul will say the reason that the congregation ought to listen to him is because he has been suffering on their behalf for the sake of the gospel, and that becomes a mark of a true disciple. And this isn't the only place that we see this. Notice what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to have respect uh, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Do you notice what Paul is saying here? That, that we are to respect those who, do a, who labor among us. That this is not saying respect those who have a position or who have a title or who have an office. But respect those who do it, who labor among us. And what is the reason he gives why we respect them? It is because of their work. Boring, once again, this term of one who works and labors. So it seems to Paul that a fair question to ask of those who are teaching the gospel to you, those who are working amongst you, the fair question to ask is, are they suffering on my behalf? And that becomes a sign of credibility of one to whom we ought to listen. It also begs the question, as we are working with and as we are mentoring and as we are teaching, we ask ourselves, have I suffered for them? Because suffering is not just something we receive, but it is something we participate in. And and if you wonder where Paul learned this lesson, he had a pretty good teacher. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 through 3, Jesus begins by saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So they have this position. But he says, But they do not practice what they teach. For they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. What, what Jesus is criticizing here is a form of leadership that does not take on suffering in the process of bringing about the completion of the message. If one says, you should do this, and you should do this, and you should do this, and you say to them, can you help me? And they say, oh, no, no, that's not my job or responsibility. That's a kind of leadership Jesus disowns. And it's a kind of a leadership that Paul also disowns. Suffering gives proof of the reliability of one who leads. But the other thing that the suffering does is it validates the message that is being preached. How do you know if something's important or valuable to someone? I remember telling my parents once when I was a little boy that I wanted a bicycle. And they had the audacity to tell me if I wanted a bike, I should get a job and buy it. 
because they wanted to know, did I really want a bike? Because if something is important, you will work for it. You will labor in order to receive that which is truly valuable to you. And so Paul will show them, not only am I, must you listen to me because I've suffered on your behalf, but I've suffered for a gospel that is worth suffering for. It is worth giving up all that we have on its behalf. And so Paul's desire is to make the word of God fully known, to proclaim, to warn everyone, to teach everyone, to encourage everyone to be united in love. And Paul will say the gospel is worth doing that for. Perhaps you've heard the, tr- the phrase that you shouldn't ask what's worth living for, but what's worth dying for. And Paul will prove that the gospel is not just theoretically for Paul worth dying for, but with his very own life, he will say it is worth dying for. And what is this thing that Paul believes is worth dying for? He reveals a piece of that in 1, 26 through 27, when he speaks of the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we speak of this mystery. The mystery is how... And when God would bring the Gentiles into relationship with him. See, from long ago it was known that somehow the Gentiles would be incorporated into the people of God. But the mystery, the thing that was uncertain is how God would bring that about. And so something that was previously hidden has now been revealed in Christ. And that is that the Gentiles can now be in a saving, connected relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And the thing that amazes Paul the most in this section is that it can be Christ in you. And and, and if, if I were one to add punctuation to the text, I would put an exclamation point after that, Christ in you. The the mystery was not that somehow the Jews would be brought into this relationship, but the Gentiles would be brought into relationship. And not only are they brought into the relationship, out of the power of darkness, those estranged and hostile in mind, now Christ himself lives within them. And that is the hope of glory. That those once outside now share in the glory. And for Paul that is good news. It is good news worth sharing and it is good news worth suffering for. Paul emphasizes the scope of this message when he speaks of warning everyone and teaching everyone and presenting everyone mature in Christ. This is now a message for all people. And Paul sees it as a joy to suffer on behalf of that message in order to bring it to people. So the suffering has validated Paul and his character. The suffering has validated the very message itself. But what the suffering also does is it shows the interconnectedness of suffering with all people who are obedient followers of Jesus. I learned the lesson of interconnectedness when I was in high school. I learned it first of all when I was in a science class and the teacher was going to show, this is not a misspeak, a film strip. I think I'm too old to have known about film strips, but the teacher was going to show a film strip and it was stolen. And until the culprit was made known, which the whole class knew exactly who it was, we were all grounded or suspended or in lockdown and even lunch came and we all through lunch we were interconnected by the suffering of the choice of one person amongst us 
But later that year, there was a group of myself, probably four or five friends. And what we would do is we would hide in the bushes by the highway or, yeah, the highway. And as a car would drive by, we would try to race by without them seeing us. And then someone decided they were going to raise the stakes. And they threw a rock at the car as it drove by. And you hear the brakes. And we run for our lives. And eventually we were sequestered as a group. And we all got in trouble. There is interconnectedness where we realize that we are connected one to another. Paul will show us the connections between Christ afflictions and between Christians and between the entire church. Notice what he says in verses 24 and 25. I am now rejoicing in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I became its servant, the churches, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And if you want to get minds turning, say, tell me, what does chapter 1 verse 24 mean? Where is Christ's afflictions incomplete that somehow it needs to be completed? And in what way can Paul make up for what was lacking in Christ? That seems a very strange thing. Some people will say Paul is doing what the cross could not do. And clearly I think we can say that's not what's happening here. There's a couple of reasons. The first reason is the text just before this, Paul was saying Christ is in all and through all and because of all, 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 all. And then he's not going to say, oh yeah, and me too. I mean, both of us, when we get together, we make this dynamic duo. So that's not what's happening. The, the word that Paul uses when he talks about the afflictions of Christ is never used in reference to what was happened on the cross. So the afflictions there is not a reference to the cross. But, but what, what we are finding and what we are seeing is that Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission to reconcile all things to himself. That reconciliation would be done through the church. And so in the process of completing this ministry for Jesus, he was afflicted. So even before he went to the cross, Christ knows afflictions. Then on the cross, he does what he needs to do, which is making peace through his blood. And then as he has done that, now all of those who walk in the footsteps of Jesus are responsible for completing what was begun through the afflictions of Christ. If you look at the word completing, you will notice that it ends with this Greek word plehro, which means fullness. So, so then we find it relates to the word of God that was fully known. In other words, there was something lacking in the fullness that Paul said we need to now make full, which is that that message was for everyone. And so how is that message going to get to everyone? It is those who follow subsequent to Jesus, they complete the mission. They complete the calling that this message will go to everyone. And the desire and the will of God is that the word of God be fully known. So can we say at this point in history, all things were, have been reconciled to him? No, the church is still on a mission. The church is still completing what was lacking. Christ suffered on behalf of and for this purpose. And so Paul's point is to say that he is completing the mission that Jesus began in his suffering. And all those who follow in the mission, they also suffer. But now the question becomes, perhaps the crux of this whole sermon is, 
Does that suffering extend to us? Or do we just corporately breathe a sigh of relief and say, Oh, I'm glad that we don't have to be a part of that process any longer. It seems pretty clear to me that Paul is talking about this as an example that he wants others to follow. Notice what he says of Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He is always wrestling, and the root word of that word is agonizing, same as Paul speaks of his own actions, in his prayer on your behalf, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills. For I testify for him that he has worked hard for you for those in Laodicea, in Heropolis. Wait, 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 wait. Paul is saying he received this commission to suffer on behalf, and now when he's saying this one who continues the ministry, what are the things that he points out specifically that Epaphras is doing? He is wrestling, struggling, and he is working hard among you. Which Paul seems to be saying this will be passed on if you want to be a part. If you are called to be a part of this ministry of the gospel then you're simultaneously called to be one who suffers on behalf of it. See, there are these very real connections we find in Colossians. See, I think this is the connection we see the easiest, that we have been brought into a connected, saving relationship with God by the cross and through His Spirit. Uh, 122, He is now reconciled in His fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable with him. Or notice what Paul says in Colossians 3. So if you have been raised with Christ, and he'll go on to say, if you have died, now your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed to him in glory. You see how we're connected to Jesus? And Jesus is what connects us to the Father, that our death is connected. We have died in our baptism, our life is now hidden with God. Our resurrection is connected with Him. And so we can say, yeah, there's a connection there between us and between God. But notice there is also a connection between Jesus and the church. 118, He is the head of the body, the church. 224, His body, that is the church. And 125, Paul says, He came to be its, the church's servant, according to the commission of God. I wonder how this speaks into our day and age where we will say, I am religious but not spiritual. And often the interpretation of that is, I've got a connection with God, but I don't have a connection with the church. And of the church, Jesus says, it is his body. And so if you are connected with God, what are you simultaneously connected with the church? I have two brothers. Nobody asked me if I want to have brothers. Nobody gave me a vote in the say, but I have brothers simply because I was born into the same family. For us as Christians, we are connected to this body. I mean, imagine dropping a hammer on your foot and saying, oh, I don't like that foot anyways. I've been having issues with it. It has this little growth on it. I just, no, it doesn't matter what you think about the foot. If you drop a hammer on it, ow, it hurts. Why? Because you are connected to it. We have been in the process of cutting off limb after limb after limb and saying, I don't need that. I don't need that. But what we find in Colossians is we are connected to 
to the body of Christ. But then there's this final thing that we find in Colossians is that we are connected each to one another. Colossians 3.15, Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in the one body, and be thankful. So Paul calls them to, above all, clothe themselves in love. Why? Because we are a part of a body. And at what point did anybody ask me if I wanted to be part of the body? When I, in the waters of baptism, made a connection with Christ in his death and burial resurrection, I simultaneously made a connection with the church, and I simultaneously made a connection to each one in the church. The church can be local. It can be broader, like we have discussions about Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis in this letter. He's saying there's interrelationship and there's connection here between all of them. Paul, even in 2.5, says, Though I am absent in body... Yet I am present with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, you could take the time to do this if you like, but when Paul talks about doing something in the spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, what connects me to you? I'm not there in my body, but I'm there through the spirit. In connection with the spirit, I am there present with you. And see, since these three things are connected, they're like an open electric circuit. I mean, it doesn't take long to realize if you do something to one part of the circuit, the rest of the circuit is affected, right? And that's the point of what's happening here in Colossians. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives... So Christ suffers, and that now what? Paul says it overflows into our lives. So when he suffers, we simultaneously suffer alongside him. That's what Paul can say in Philippians 3.10. He can speak of the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. So we are related and we are connected. And the opposite is also true, not just that we share in the sufferings of Christ, but what the church experiences, Christ himself suffers on their behalf. Think about what Jesus said to Paul on the road of Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Oh, sorry, I misread that. He says, why do you persecute me? What is done against the church is done to Christ himself. What I do to my left foot, I do to my right foot. The body doesn't vote and say, no, I am separated from or I have nothing to do with that. See, I think one of the greatest challenges for the church today is to recognize the role of suffering for one another in the process of completing the mission of Christ. How many of you, when you decided where to go to church, you said, I will find the church where I will need to suffer the most? I didn't do that. Or how many of you, when you're given a choice of four or five or six or 25 churches... We'll say, hmm, which one of these churches will allow me to suffer the most? We do not like suffering. We do not pursue suffering. But it seems to be the core of the legitimacy of the gospel is shown in our suffering. And again, we're not talking about general suffering like, oh, I had the flu last week. I've been suffering for Christ. No, this is in the process of doing what God called us to do, that we suffer. Perhaps we need to take a new look at suffering. If I want to be credible, 
And what I do from this pulpit, I need to be willing to suffer on your behalf. And if you want to do what's credible in your lives of your co-workers and of your friends and of your family, you need to be willing to suffer on their behalf. And if you want to be a credible member of a church, you cannot say, well, that's the arm that I don't like anyways. No, we are a connected body. And so within this, I see a great calling. I've shared this story once before which shows how interconnected we are as sufferers. When I was a baby, I don't even remember this happening. Somebody broke into our house. Two men armed with knives. And so my mother is the only one home. My dad is out of the house on that occasion. And down the hallway, my two brothers and I are asleep. And when they came into the house, my mom was very happy to just say, take whatever you want, have whatever you want. But as they turned and started walking down the hallway, my mother, who's all of, I don't know, like five nothing, charged them. That was the absolutely most irresponsible and most responsible thing she could have ever done. Because she was connected to her children. And so one of the men grabbed her and held a knife to her throat. And she knew that's what was going to happen. But she knew she was connected. What if we began to look at the church in that same way? What if we began to look at each other in that same way? What if we began to realize Christ suffered so we could be a part of something and for us to be a part of something in someone else's life? A position to lead is a calling to suffer. Paul exemplified that in his life, and he called time after time in his letters for churches also to suffer. And perhaps we need this blessing as we prepare to leave with this call of suffering, that the Lord would bless us and keep us. That the Lord would make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. And that the Lord would turn his face towards us and give you peace. See, when Paul talked about his suffering, he didn't say, I've suffered so much, I am now absolutely miserable. What did he begin by saying in 124? I rejoice. I rejoice in my suffering. And so may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you want to respond in any way, uh, we'll have some uh, elders back here, some other folks. If you want somebody to pray with, uh, you want to talk about where you're at in life, just find someone in the back while we stand and sing together and we'll pray with you. Let's stand. Jesus, my heavenly King, love me.